What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Around the 1980s, Nintendo ruled the video game space with its Nintendo Entertainment System. However, as the 90s crossed over, competition emerged from longtime rival Sega and newcomer to the gaming world, Sony. A new product needed to emerge to hold the line of supremacy Mario and his pals had established. This led to the release of Nintendo 64, which remains one of the most recognized gaming consoles in history, spawning countless franchises and revealing industry changing innovations like the Rumble Pack. But those were indoor games. That same year, the Olympics took place in Atlanta, Georgia, and despite being marred in controversy between ill preparations and the bombing of Centennial Park, the event was considered a resounding success. This would, however, be the last time the games were held on U.S. soil. In a similar vein, 1996 would also be the last time Roadrunner Records would release an album by the band Dog Eat Dog on U.S. soil. Their sophomore effort was also a success despite controversy, spawning many hit singles like Rocky and Isms, but much like the Olympics, they would continue competing overseas. This week on Meet Meet begins Season 3, 1996's 25th Anniversaries. Dog Eat Dog. Play Games. Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll. What up, what up, Meepsters, and welcome to Season 3, 1996, 25th Anniversaries. I'm excited to kick things off on this awesome series of albums, and if you want to help support the excitement, don't forget about the show's Patreon. It costs less than a gallon of gas a month to help me continue burning the house down, plus you get access to exclusive bonus episodes, so head over to patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Alright, so 1996. The same year the Motorola StarTac phone was released, or the flip phone as we call it, the world would never be the same, and Dog Eat Dog celebrated by releasing their follow-up to the literally award-winning Roadrunner debut, All Borough Kings, with an all-star collection of songs called Play Games. I used my anytime minutes to call band frontman JC and got the lowdown on this championship campaign. You even got the, uh... The play games hockey jersey gimmick going. Yeah. yeah, I had I had to bust it out. Um, you know, just get nostalgic here, thinking about 25 years as you reminded me. This was handmade, uh, obviously a one of a kind, and uh, got my name on the back. And uh, yeah, man, wanted to bust it out for this special occasion to talk about this album. So sick. Well, I was going to ask you that if these jerseys on the the album artwork are all like one of a kind, or if they were mass produced. All of those items were handmade for the photo shoots. And uh, I was just thinking about it today. You know, Sean Kilkenny had a racing suit. And Sean, the only way 
he would participate in it was if he could be a race car driver. And we were like, nah, man, like do football or something. He was like, nope. He's like, race car or nothing. We're like, you'd rather not be on the record. <laughs> and he's like, yep. I mean, that's that's Sean. I love him. That's that's how he is. But that racing suit wasn't cheap. I think it was between uh, 500 and 1,000 to get made. It could even more than that. But uh, back then, we had baller budgets. So. <laughs> well, that was also the 90s, though, so that's like 10,000 now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we spent, we spent some money on that record. The first thing that I want to ask you about uh, at Club Ibex with Madball, Downset, Dog Eat Dog. Well, if I remember correctly, we, we were on the tour and... We were close to the end, or maybe we were getting a break or going home for that CBGB show. It it was a matinee show, and I don't remember, like, it was a big room. I don't remember it being, like, off the chains or anything kind of significant happening there. But I do remember waking up, and it's not the hood now, but it was the hood then in, in D.C. And we woke up, it was snowing, and we're in the hood. Luckily, there was like a McDonald's across the street. So at least, you know, you could get some hot food. But I remember at loadout, they were loading in for the go-go show and we were loading out and the neighborhood kids were throwing snowballs at us <laughs> while, we, while we were loading out of an old, old room. I don't think it was a church, but it kind of had that vibe, really high vaulted ceilings and everything. But we were getting pelted with snowballs loading out. And uh, yeah, that wasn't so fun. I don't have very memory, uh, many memories helping the crew load in or out, but I was that day because they were just, you know, they, they were getting sabotaged, literally. Oh, yeah, you're the vocalist. That's your whole gimmick is you're not supposed to load in or out. Absolutely. You know, if you have a proper case of lead singer's disease, you know <laughs> that, uh, yeah, the, the closest I'll get to loading in or out is like watching the back door if those guys are loading the trailer or the van or something like that. You said they were loading in for the Go-Go's. You mean the band, the Go-Go's, or there was Go-Go dancers at this club? Neither. It, in D.C., there's a funk music called Go-Go. Oh. And it is uh, indigenous to Washington. You know, it's, it's, been, it's been out there in pop culture a little bit. I think Nelly's used some Chuck Brown samples. Um, but uh, it's primarily if you never lived in D.C. or you don't know people from D.C., you might it might escape you, but it's definitely international. So they have these, uh, they have the go-go. So it could be any band, but they call it the go-go because go-go bands are playing and they were loading in for the night show. We were loading out from the hardcore matinee and, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a mix, (laughs) (laughs) but like when you're rolling with, with like mad ball and down set, like, you know, fights are not going to be a problem. Like, you know, that like, if shit goes down, you're, you're in good company. Let's put it that way. We, uh, we were lucky because I guess when we hit the scene, especially MTV with the no fronts video, we were the first music video to ever have snowboarding in it. So kids got the lifestyle. People uh, gravitated towards us, skateboarders, snowboarders, kind of, um, immediately gravitated towards it or people that, you know, maybe were on the fringe of that, but they just wanted to get into it and, and learn more about it. So I think, you know, when we hit, we, it was just a perfect storm of, you know, the right 
sound, the right package, a lot of things. And uh, I think that's why it went as big as it did with MTV, really driving the, the ship with, uh, with no fronts and then the remix and all that. Yeah, that X Games crowd, right? Kind of like on that cusp of that time too. But it was before the X Games, you know? It was pre, but you had Green Day and Bad Religion and, you know, the Southern California kind of offspring that that look and that energy and then here we were and we we had that but we had like the east coast swag so it was like biohazard and we had you know jam Jam master j uh uh, who did the remix for no fronts and you know the who even the who's the kings video that didn't uh it didn't hit like a single with mtv but the right crowd saw it the headbangers ball and 120 minutes that that whole and there was skateboarding in that. And there was the Brooklyn Banks, you know, there was like an authentic kind of uh, crossover between music and lifestyle that nobody else had shown really at that point, or, or at least on an East Coast level, maybe Biohazard. But those guys were more like aggro. And this was more like, hey, this is skate and snowboard culture. And I think because we were actively doing that or a good part of the band were doing it. Um, that it resonated, you know, as, as being authentic. I have said that, that, uh, that dog eat dog are like biohazard, but like you want to, you think that they would be your friend. Well, as, as Beavis and Butthead said, <laughs> they're up in the mountains hiding from the real rappers. <laughs> Sipping hot chocolate forties, I think is what they were saying. But I, I do take pride in the fact that Mike Judge didn't even know what to call snowboarding. They actually said what we were doing was skiing, not snowboarding. So that's how ahead of the times we were, my friend. They call you butt munchers. Of course they do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you can't, you're either, you hit it if you're loved or hate it on Beavis and Butthead. And, you know, even that wasn't enough to put us over uh, with the American public. <laughs> right. So between Alboro Kings and play games. There's some personnel changes within Dog Eat Dog, right? Yes. Uh, one of those, I think, on a temporary basis is Paris Mayhew of Cro-Mags fame. So Paris was not, Paris was a live musician with Dog Eat Dog. He never wrote with us. We got offered the, I'll rewind it a little bit further. When we made Alboro Kings, we knew that spring and summer, that Dan Nastasi was about to get married and that anything we did other than local shows, he just wasn't going to be a part of. He was in the process of taking over his father's family business, which was a concrete asphalt uh, paving thing. And Dan had already been working there. And we kind of knew that the record was coming out. We didn't expect to tour around the world. That's for sure. But we did expect to do something. And I think we had a pretty good idea that the biohazard thing was was coming um, or something like it. So Dan, we already knew Dan couldn't tour. And it was Sean Kilkenny's idea to ask Paris to do it. He was friends with the biohazard guy. He, he had been shooting videos uh, with Drew Stone and them anyway. And of course, it couldn't hurt us to have a Cro-Mag, you know, playing guitar with us on our tour Remember, remember, we did that tour in the spring with Biohazard before the album came out. The album came out while we were on tour with Biohazard um, at that time. So 
we got uh, Sean got Paris to to do the tour, and I guess he had done the fall tour as well. We we did the spring in Europe with Biohazard. We did some East Coast stuff, I believe, in the states, and we had already booked at the. We were popping off in the spring so fast, I guess, that they really rushed together a fall European headlining tour for us um, at that point. So the winter of 95, we, we continued on tour in Europe. But to, uh, to Paris played that, that stuff with us. And we always knew that Paris was not going to be a writing member or a member of Doggy Dog. That wasn't in his plans and it wasn't in ours. I think um, he fit his role nicely at the time. And by the time he couldn't do it or we f- we needed a replacement, we already had a guy in mind who ended up being Mark DeBacher. And Mark played in a group called Mental Disturbance that he played bass in that band and they supported Mucky Pup on a 1988 or 89 tour uh, or sorry, 89 or 90 tour that I was involved with. So Sean, Dave, and I already knew Mark. And Mark, in fact, moved to Bergenfield, New Jersey, and played bass in Mucky Pup for a time, probably while Doggy Dog was just getting off the ground. I, I'm not great with dates, but certainly um, Mark played in Mucky Pup before Doggy Dog. So Mark was living back in Belgium. We were constantly touring in Europe. We knew he could do the, the music. So I think we brought Mark on board. Maybe he was living in the States at the time. If not, we quickly got him into Scott Mueller, our sax player's living arrangement. Scott had inherited a house or bought a house from from a family member. I forget exactly what happened. So Mark D uh, was in the band. Dan, we brought Dan in for a little bit of writing on play games, but I think pretty quickly it didn't uh, it didn't mesh. Uh, for whatever reason, we just weren't on the same page. We were this unit that was flying around the world and kind of, you know, we're, we're our mini gang or army or team, whatever it was. Um, we had, we had brought Dan in, but it just, the vibe wasn't right and it didn't work out, but Mark was there. Brandon Finley had joined the band in 95, right before the MTV award. Matter of fact, David Maltby, our drummer, had quit the band through our manager. He actually called the manager. He didn't call any of us, which I still am a little bit chuffed about to this day, amongst other things. He's kind of the only guy in Doggy Dog that we're not in touch with. Uh, all the other band members were, you know, on speaking terms or, or, or still good friends with. Um, but, but Dave quit the day that we got nominated for the MTV Award. And, uh, you know... It's kind of weird. Brandon joined the band and had his first gig a few days before we accepted said MTV awards. So things were happening quick for us. Um, the the pressure from the label was certainly not strong, but we were aware that we had had to make a second record. We had already started writing. You know, we were excited by everything that was happening in our world. But we were also exhausted. You know, we had done a ton of shows in 94, 95, and going into 96. We were writing the whole time, but we were in pretty good hands. Like we, you know, we had rehearsal space. We had the RZA, you know, coming potentially to New Milford 
to to come to you know Boulevard Studios. There there was really an open checkbook for us mostly at that time. It was an exciting time for everybody. I think personally and professionally, we ha had come up with our own formula and now we were able to run free. You know, it, it worked. Like we, we had success in the underground, you know, we were able to kind of build up through, through the hardcore kind of scene and the skate and snowboard scene. And it had spilled over into, at least in Europe, into the pop world. We won an MTV award, had a big summer ahead if we could get this record done and out. You know, we knew kind of what the stakes were. And we also knew that our instincts had proven us uh, correctly to a point. So I think we were feeling ourselves definitely. There wasn't a whole lot of doubt. And listening back to play games now, you know, I, I was proud of the record. I, I felt like I could hear our, our optimism and our kind of uh, willingness to experiment. But I also could hear, you know, the disillusionment and the exhaustion. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, your, your dreams are coming true. And, and you're, getting, you're getting a taste of, you know, maybe what you thought being a rock star would be like when you were uh, a teenager and, and realizing these dreams and looking up to Twisted Sister and, you know, Black Sabbath and Motley Crue in these groups, you know, at first. And then you're also seeing the, the hard side of the record business and the, you know, the loneliness of the road and things like that. And we didn't have cell phones and, you know, video chats and things like that to connect with family and friends and, and girlfriends and, you know, just, the, the dichotomy, you know, of having a lot of really what you maybe thought you ever wanted, but also realizing that there were prices to pay. And I think some of that shows in, in the lyrics and, and the attitude um, on the record on, on certain songs. Yeah, you mentioned the record label kind of, which is Roadrunner, which is what we're talking about. So yeah. much so that Roadrunner Records is referenced in the album on Step Right In. And, and in the song Play Games itself. <laughs> you know, we talk about our manager status. He was like, he heard that and was like, oh, come on, guys. You know, we're keeping it real right now. <laughs> so Porcel of, of Shelter fame has mentioned around this time that Roadrunner was determined to get like a, a pop radio hit and that the two bands they thought they could do it with were either Shelter or Dog Eat Dog, and that they were willing to financially invest in those things. Shelter makes a record called Beyond Planet Earth that apparently everybody but me hates, and uh, Dog Eat Dog makes play games. Uh, Beyond Planet Earth sounds nothing like the predecessor of Shelter, which they did Mantra. Play Games doesn't sound like a totally different band from Allboro Kings in the same aspect, but there certainly are differences between the two. But I think a lot of those are probably just based on what came after and just knowing you guys probably a little bit more natural progression as to what you were maybe going in anyway. But was there a lot more involvement with the label as far as checking in on what you guys were doing? I mean, they certainly seem to facilitate a couple of these features that are a little bit bigger names than maybe the Allboro Kings was, but was there a moment where they were like, you know, daddy needs a hit. Where's the, where's the single? No. Um, we all, we all had the same aspirations. And that was that we had reached 
um, certain heights with Allboro Kings. So I think the, that the label and the band knew that if we followed our instincts and we went after what felt right to us, I think, you know, when we did the No Fronts remix, we had Jam Master J there, right? So we knew we already had the chorus. We already, you know, we had a guy that was well experienced in making hits with Run DMC and he's bringing a certain flavor into it. Now, Howie Abrams was in the room with JMJ. Howie Abrams was, no bullshit, writing lyrics with me and for me to try and bring this song to where it needed to be. So if you want to talk about an influence of somebody from the label, you know, wanting to make something great and pushing something and literally having hands in the, in the, uh, the drink while we're creating it. Absolutely. But Howie was also a guy that we played softball with, you know what I mean? And I would go to shows with and smoke joints with, and, you know, bug out and talk about music and, you know, he was more than just an industry friend at that time, you know, so how he had kind of been a force in doggy dog ever since he signed us. The only time we, we never took him seriously was when at, at very, at first he saw us at Bond Street Cafe and he pretty much, you know, got the wheels in motion to make an offer right away. He said, I love it. I love the energy. Let's move forward. I'm not sure about the saxophone. <laughs> is the thing that he said, which ended up being one of our trademarks. So there you go. Um, but but again, he, he deserves a lot of credit. And I think the label had given him a lot of currency because he brought shelter in Doggy Dog. Remember, they had they had Peter Steele, they had Life Agony, they had Sepultura, they didn't have Slipknot yet or anything, but at the time, Doggy Dog had brought Roadrunner as uh, as a label up to the highest heights. I mean, we went to South South America and Southeast Asia and, you know, we went to places that no band had gone before with that label, especially at MTV and MTV Europe and MTV internationally. So they certainly made us feel at least in the creative process and through the release of play game that they were about it and they were, willing to do whatever they took. The, the, the way things really went south was that play games had a nice long life. We had Rocky, we had, um, we had isms. So we had a couple video songs. They spent money on those videos. We, Michael Lucero, rest in peace. He did those uh, clips. We filmed them out in California, you know, with real budgets and, they failed at the level where, in my opinion, where, where things went south anyway, was Step Right In was getting ready to be the final single. And it was going to require a big investment. We had done the song with RZA. They paid RZA a lot of money. We had a deal with RZA that was almost six figures for two songs. I'll say, say that. Um, one song got made but a second song almost got made. And the idea originally was that Rizzo was going to come into our world and create a song and that would be Step Right In. And then I was gonna go with him and do a more hip hop track and something way different than Doggy Dog 
maybe have guitars, maybe not. I, me and Howie went out to 36 Chambers. We went to Staten Island and, uh, you know, we spent whatever, six or eight hours like at that studio during a Ghostface session. And, you know, a lot of the time was waiting for RZA, but then he showed up and, you know, we hung out and spent the night with him and he gave me a demo and the demo never went anywhere, but I have on cassette, like the loop basically that, that RZA had sent. There is uh, from the New York City uh, session that we did where we recorded and wrote Step Right In all in one night. There's also a jam session that um, I now have. There's a Woo Dog which is basically like 10 minutes of us basically jamming live, mostly RZA doing freestyle. I haven't heard it in years. Apparently I, I do uh, rap a little bit on it, but I spent most of the time, you know, with my jaw on the, on the floor of the booth, you know, standing next to the RZA, you know, with two microphones, just being like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. <laughs> it had gotten to a, a pretty big level. We had a nice international, um, kind of cooperation between the various Roadrunner offices. And if you don't know the dynamic, Roadrunner had had its New York, it had its Germany, it had its Holland. Those were the main kind of bases of Roadrunner, but those offices, sorry, and London, those offices were very independent. They all had like their own budgets. They all had their own bands. They signed certain bands that other territories might not have gotten. And you know, as great as they were independently, they didn't always want to work collectively. Uh, and Doggy Dog being an international success, there was a lot of tug of war between people on who wanted the credit for that, uh, people who took the credit for the success of breaking the band as well uh, had its own resentment. So there were some deep things going on and for a band, that was managed as poorly as we were. It was a miracle that we had gotten to this phase. The Roadrunner Holland office had gotten Junkie XL to do a remix, who was a Dutch guy who worked a lot with Roadrunner back in those days. And, you know, we got to meet him and know him a little bit through kind of Roadrunner events and some festivals. And he was a great guy. We were stoked on it. And then the producer of this German band called Defest. Fantastischen Fear, which is the Fantastic Four, they're basically like the German Beastie Boys. They're, you know, grade school homies that met at the local record store, kind of, and that's where they congregated. And that guy, Bear, became their manager. And so we had their kind of producer, it was three rappers and a DJ make up the Fantastic Four. Andy Epsilon was a big deal in Germany, and Roadrunner Germany got Andy to, to remix it. And then I think we got remixed by fan, Fantastic Plastic Machine or something, a big Tokyo DJ. So all the offices kind of had their own imprint on it. And uh, Odara and uh, Digby did a, uh, a drum and bass uh, remix. So we really had like the cream in the crop, this awesome remix kind of album. The Riz is on the single and it's Riz is committed to doing a video. Wu-Tang Forever is... They're just, you know, the, the record's done. They're just starting to talk about it and starting to tease. And, you know, things are really, really looking well for us. We get, we, we did a remix of Step Right In. I, I forget Daniel, 
Daniel Wise or somebody did it. I forget the guy's name, but I re-recorded vocals. We went in the studio. Daniel Wise, that was it. We uh, He had been a Roadrunner guy. I think he worked some with Shelter. Um, but we really had the right re- commercial kind of remix of Step Right In. It ended up on the X Games soundtrack. It was like the first or second year that the X Games had a soundtrack. And we really had all these things in line. It's time to do the video. The RZA is like, he's around. He commits to doing the video, but he wants to do the video in Egypt. (laughs) (laughs) Is he going to be in Egypt or something? Or he just, he's like, you know where this video needs to take place at? The pyramids. Right. That's what he said. Uh, So quickly that, that can't happen. Uh, Michael Lucero, who's a dear friend of mine by this point, we've shot shot a few, three videos together. You know, we used to go snowboarding together, which is, you know, really homey, seeing things eye to eye. And uh, Michael's like, I can make the pyramids happen, but, you know, it's got to be low pro. Then at, at the 11th hour, it's too much money. There's no way it's going to happen. But Roadrunner Germany, there, there's a weekend set aside. There's a treatment for the video. We're going to film the video. Riza is the cab driver and he's going to drive around and he's going to pick different people up. And that's how the, how the video is going to be shot. We just really need a couple of still shots of him in the cab. And then maybe, you know, him on a flatbed. It's really only going to be like an hour, hour of his time, whatever it is. We have it all set. Roadrunner flies, Roadrunner Germany flies Andy Epsilon from Germany, him and his girlfriend first class put him up in a nice hotel in new york city and as it happened most of the time in those days with roadrunner when it came down to big decisions money decisions it never could be handled by the various people who were supposed to handle it being our manager and roadrunner it always ended up with like me and case who who was practically retired the owner uh, of of the label like on the phone and me having to explain to him how fucking like important the RZA is and how this is a massive, you know, victory. Like this will resonate this, this band, like at that time, like the 36 chambers was a massive culturally important record, but Wu-Tang forever is what sold. That was the thing that, you know, went platinum and, and kind of made Wu-Tang a household name. So even a guy in the record business, couldn't understand that what RZA would mean. And of course, you know, it doesn't, I don't live my life by what ifs, but if that video got made and we were on the X game soundtrack and Wu-Tang forever does what it does, I think that we would have been able to maybe carry some of the momentum or, or create American momentum at the right time in the right place. You know, and that that's all there was to it. I just love, you know, the intricacies of it. And I can look back 25 years later without the emotional attachment of of what if, you know what I mean? But at the time, you know, I was passionately fighting for, for the band and the project. But at the same time, I was at the beginning of like, oh, this record business shit is like, you know, it's it's draining me. This album is recorded in various places, right? It's not just all done in one spot. Absolutely, yeah. What was the strategy behind that or the reasoning for it? The strategy and the reasoning for it was, as we discussed a little bit, 
there, the budget was open. The pocketbook was open. We wanted to, as a band and as a label, wanted to make sure nobody could afford for this to sound wrong. It had to have a chance because the band was willing to follow our, our muse in whatever direction. And we had already had this kind of uh, exposure, you know, like we knew ourselves that we weren't going back immediately to the underground. Like once you, you have the MTV award and you have all this exposure and you're on the radio, like there's a certain segment of the underground that's already done with you by the time you've hit that success. So right or wrong, wherever we were, we knew that, that it was okay to continue there. When Dave and Sean and I, when we started the band, we always had an open-minded approach. That was one of the tenets, especially for me. I didn't want to be in just a hardcore band or a metal band or a rap band or, or anything. I really, you know, I was into Primus and Urban Dance Squad and also Murphy's Law and Cro-Mags and Leeway. And there, there were so many things that all of us enjoyed that we couldn't just be one thing. But one thing that we also spoke about was we just didn't want to be for one audience. We were going to talk to whoever wanted to talk to us. And that was from fanzines all the way up to MTV or be it CNN. Like it, it just didn't matter. We didn't want to limit who, what we could be or what we wanted to be. So the idea behind this album was we wanted to make sure that we had a a record that could be on radio that that sounded true to us, but also had a professional sound and approach. And I think from the packaging through through the way that we even approach recording, it, it was shoot for the stars. And right away, we knew that meant getting quality production, name people that we could trust. Roadrunner had spent money. They flew Phil Nicolo over one of the butcher brothers over to London to see us, uh, to see us perform, to catch the energy of the band live. And also to, we went into a rehearsal studio, like a, a really nice place, like an SIR or whatever. And he came in there and we ran through probably, I don't know, the six ideas or something that we had right there. So he came and sat with us in a rehearsal studio. It was determined that the butcher brothers were interested but they only had time to do, I think it was six songs. So we knew that, you know, we knew the Butcher Brothers, like they had already come from the rock world with Urge Overkill and they had, they knew Criss Cross, you know, they had done Criss Cross, they had done Cypress Hill, like we were okay, the Fuji's record. Uh, I think when we were recording with those guys, the score had come out and I got into the score before it went pop. Like I knew about the Fugees from New York radio right away. It was a thing before it even blew up in the way that it did. But there was a great energy around those sessions. You know, we were in Conchahawken, uh, PA. Like I said, we had been touring. Um, we had the material prepared, but we were also interested in kind of, you know, going, pushing things as far as we could go with them. I mean, 
We had a weed budget for God's sake. <laughs> you know what I mean? We were, we were in nice, nice hotel. Uh, you know, we were close to the studio. It just, everything felt great. And, you know, those guys made us feel comfortable and we, you know, we could do exactly what we wanted. And, you know, Howie was there part of the time. He wasn't there the whole time, but, uh, you know, we really you know, felt like you talk about creating an atmosphere. It was a perfect atmosphere. Everybody was gassed up. You know, we had rehearsed the song. Um, we're well fed. Everything was going great, honestly. Yeah, you mentioned the packaging for it, too. I'm big on album covers in general, but the packaging for Play Games is really sick. I mean, just with the whole layout, and the, the cards and everything like that's such right. a cool concept that ties in with the theme and when you're listening to the album it kind of all you know fleshes together i know that the whole album isn't you know baseball themed or whatever but it it kind of gives you that that vibe of uh maybe like a a, a summer game of catch yeah i i don't know um i think because the outdoorsy aspect maybe of the pictures and everything that uh i, I like the idea that it feels like summer because I know the label and the band at that point, like the focus was on the summer of 96. Like we already knew we had festival bookings, you know, a year in advance. And these were festival bookings where we were like main staging with Alanis and Rage Against the Machine and, you know, David Bowie. Like it was some of our biggest probably shows ever um, around that time. and. You know, when we made All Borough Kings, we weren't thinking about record cycles or videos or singles or anything like that. I mean, it, it, took, uh, it took me hyperextending my knee at Hunter Mountain snowboarding for me to even get getting around to finishing the lyrics for All Borough Kings. Like, you know, I finished some songs in the studio, believe that. Uh, I think the, the verse to No Fronts, I think, was finished in the studio. So you know, for, for play games, we were a lot more focused and we knew, we knew what the stakes were. And the, if you want to talk about the cover and the packaging, um, I certainly can because the idea for the album title and the packaging was pretty much all mine. It was executed beautifully by photographers and everybody, you know, getting the right kit and, and taking their photos. But I think the, I think the name of that the record might have even come before the song Games or or around the same time. But I really love the Allboro Kings packaging. I just thought it was sick. The, the crown was so iconic. And um, inside Todd James, the artwork that he did of all the various characters. And, you know, it just had such a feel to it that, I think people really gravitated and I, I think it helped put that album over the top as well. That's why the band was so disgusted when the special edition came out and it was this green, we called it the green monster because they turned this beautiful, like, you know, cover and the crown into this most disgusting thing. We're like, you couldn't have made it more ugly. If you wanted to. <laughs> I guess they made it like neon. It wasn't even neon green, but it was like, they wanted it to stick out, you know, in record stores. I'm like, oh, it sticks out. All right. It <laughs> stinks. Um, but 
we knew with play games that we wanted an awesome package. Like, you know, we were racking our brains. And like I said earlier in the conversation, there were band members, you know, Mark D, uh, I think Sudi, Sean, like a lot of the guys in the band, maybe even Dave, like were, you know, dudes were not that into dressing up and taking these, you know, pose shots. We were rightfully so considered a band that was very uh, authentic. You know, we are who we say we are. We wear the same clothes on and off the stage. Um, at that time, I think a lot of bands had more mystery around them. And, and we immediately were like, no, fuck that. Like, we're going to be at the merch table. Like, we don't care how big we are. Like, we want to mix with our fans. Even though we're on MTV, it's important that we're accessible. And that's how, you know, those are the bands that we appreciate. People like Jimmy from Murphy's Law. Like, you could have a beer with him. You know what I mean? Like, you could go to a show and, and hang out you know, with, with the bands that you loved, if, if that was your thing. So we always wanted to be like that. Um, but, you know, there were also, I'm sorry, I got sidetracked there. No, it's okay. Um, does the title come from like being contrarian to not playing games? Like we're not playing games, like the, the, the phrase of that, or is it just literally like, Hey, we're having fun. We're playing games. There, there was, there was like kind of a duality or, or an element to it. I, at that time, um, I kind of sold the guys on the idea of this kind of jock look um, (laughs) by being like, hey, you know, it's a metaphor. We're a team and we're certainly, you know, whether anybody else in the band would admit it or not, we certainly were competitive with other bands. You know what I mean? In that way, like. At that point, we had already had a top 10 in the UK and number nine was Michael Jackson. You know what I mean? So we're <laughs> like, yeah, we want to be like we if we're going to be in the charts, if we're going to be in pop music, we want to be big. You know, <laughs> like so there was not a when you're when you're in a band and you're traveling, there's always an us versus them mentality with with you and your crew, you're in your little bubble and you're like, you're just, you know, you're kind of this team or, or a gang, whatever you want to call it. So the idea that we were a team wasn't far-fetched. Everybody was already into that mentality. And the idea that we were competing with, with other bands, you know, as corny as that sounds, or now it sounds a little silly to me, but you know, that was just a phase in our career. Like we were out there and if we were going to be in the charts, we wanted to be number one. So there was some sort of competition to it. And I think it allowed me to uh, take the imagination to uh, a place creative enough to get to the concept and to get to kind of mapping it out to the pack of baseball cards and the the foil even the little detail the way it looks like that foil card that you would open up anybody of a certain generation that had you know trading cards you know would get that and and get the the feel and back in the 90s it was getting ready to evaporate but things were still tactile you know you you could touch your records like play games came 
on vinyl. You know, we cared about the way our records opened up and looked. You know, we were involved in every single detail down to the, instead of saying tops, it says props there. You know, props was a huge word in hip hop at the time. So we wanted, you know, instead of saying tops, we made it props. Like every little thing, even the little like the dog head logo, like this dog head ended up being our backdrop for our, you know, play games theater tour. Like, you know, we, Dave and I especially, and, uh, and Sean at that time, um, were, were heavily invested in the way things looked. You know, we were fans of music. So we, we cared the way a record looked. You know, we grew up walking into stores and, and having to touch a record before you actually buy it, uh, the vinyl and tapes and even CDs. So the, everything was thought about for sure, even down to the, the font, the way the lyrics are printed. So let's go through uh, some of the songs on the album itself. The opening track, Bulletproof, is very like classic dog-eat-dog sound. You know, it's not anything crazy that you're going to go from Marlboro Kings and hear that and be like, oh, this is this is nuts. The thing that I noticed about this song, listening back to it recently, and a couple other tracks on here, is that this album has way more guitar leads than Marlboro Kings ever did. And I don't know if that's because of the addition of Mark or if it's just, you know, a natural thing that you were like, oh, maybe we should have guitar leads. Because I even pointed out to Dave, I think, when we talked about Alboro Kings, I was like, it's weird that you guys have two guitar players because you have one guitar part. Yeah, there's no leads. Alboro Kings had some of some layering, like acoustic guitar. was used a lot on Alboro Kings as a trick that I think Jason Corsaro was all about. Um, but yeah, when we came into play games, we were just interested in kind of using the studio more as well, trying to, to hear things and, and figure out what parts were, you know, lent themselves to different uh, things like sax. There's, there's a lot of sax parts on play games. There's entire horn sections starting out with Bulletproof. We used are uh, not used, they, they came, performed, and, and got well compensated for it. But the Urban Blight guys, who are a New York band that have been around forever and featured Mackie from Chromags and Brandon Finley, our Brandon Finley, was playing with Urban Blight and Howie Abrams was, was friends with those guys. And that's how Brandon got in Dog and Dog, for anybody who never heard that story. The Urban Blight Horns, who coincidentally played all the live horns on Beastie Boys License to Ill as well, were used all over that uh, the Play Games album. They, they played there. And the reggae uh, kind of dance hall chatting that goes on during Bulletproof is Kevin Batchelor, who is part of the, the UB Horns and now is part of Steel Pulse. With that record, Mark D was a guy that like to, you know, noodle, make sounds. Sean Kilkenny is a huge Angus Young fan and reluctantly will do solos. But he's like, if I do a solo, it's just going to sound like Angus. I'm like, well, that works for him. So why don't you throw whatever you feel? So Sean would throw that that bluesy thing down. Um, I can't remember being like, we got to have more solos, guys. But I think everybody wanted uh, or everybody was encouraged to be a part of it. And I think for us, we thought we were 
making our songwriting a little bit more sophisticated by adding little touches like like leads and noodles and things like that. Bulletproof was written as we were touring for All Borough Kings. That was probably the first or second song, I think. I wrote the words to Numb like on the Biohazard tour, some, some of that. So, you know, it, we were not a band that released a lot, obviously, uh, over 30 years, but we didn't really, and in those days we were traveling so hard and certainly Dave and I were doing a ton of press as well as things ramped up. So even like there was no doing sound checks or, you know, we had no time to write, but when we did have time to write, Bulletproof and Numb were the first songs to come up with. And I think Bulletproof was very much more like a All Borough Kings type song that we learned how to pull it into play games by things like solos and the Kevin Batchelor, uh, like the rapping, just a little kind of extra voices. One of the things that I noticed by listening to the album uh, yesterday was how much, how many voices were on it between RZA and Dio and, you know, Iron Eagle and just everybody in the band singing more and you hearing Scott, Scott Mueller uh, singing some lines and Dave taking the lead on Rocky. Uh, Sean and Mark D even have a couple of lines in Buggin. So um, everybody sang, you know, I think even Brandon did some backups on that album. So we really got everyone involved. Yeah. That's one thing about play games and all Borough Kings uh, as a, as a unit together is that there's, it, it very much feels like a, a family affair. Like all, uh, you know, I don't know that they're your friends or not, but it feels like you just brought in all your friends to, uh, to kind of participate in these albums that you're excited about making. Yeah, that's the vibe with us anyway. We we're definitely, uh, you know, Sean, Dave and I come from the like Murphy's Law uh, school, like Jimmy, let's make this a party. So, you know, when the guy said, hey, when you're writing lyrics and stuff, and I'm talking about at the very beginning, like you can't just speak for John Connor, you know, just don't write about your political view or, you know, try and speak for all of us, you know, and, and Sean and Dave wrote a lot of lyrics, uh, it, and Dan Nastasi as well, big time on, uh, on All Borough Kings. But that was the album that took, like, let's say our whole life to make because it was our first album. This album, we, you know, we went to work to make it. We, we had scheduled writing times where we were getting together. We also felt like, okay, it's okay to say you don't like something and we're a dem- democratic process to, to almost everything we did in the band. But you can't just say you don't like something. You have to present a an alternative or say why or try and change it in some way. You just can't neg out on something. You have to try and correct it or make it better. And I think that's served us well over the years to, to create that type of dialogue and expectation that, you know, just negging on something is not going to cut it. Like, let's work it out and try and make it better. Yeah, it makes a product that it seems like the whole band is happy with, and which is probably why 25 years later you can look back on and be like, oh, this is this is still good. So the second song is Isms, which was a single and uh, has that kind of soulful chorus, which I know has a, a, a guest singer on. I'm not sure who she is. And maybe you're going to tell me she was on, you know, the Cypress Hill record or something <laughs> like you have the Beastie Boys. She was definitely uh, Isms was a, certainly a Butcher Brothers production. 
and probably you know i think isms was in the first batch of songs that uh, that that we played for phil so that was a song we spent a lot of time and attention on it was probably looked at as a uh, single material from early on so i remember we spent a lot of time on the vocals uh i certainly I did okay on that song, but it, it's not uh, not like I, in my opinion, my strongest vocal performance ever. I wouldn't say uh, I would be able to carry that soulful vibe, uh, <laughs> especially in nineteen ninety six. So the you know the soul singer was brought in just to try, just another voice. I think you know we probably had Dave try and sing along with that. I, Scott Mueller. Um, Dave, Scott, and I had all taken vocal lessons, me for more than a year, but uh, Scott and Dave, I made those guys take vocal lessons because, and, and the label paid for all of it, um, because I, I said to those guys, look, if we're going to sing on this record and have harmonies and things like that, not only is this going to help you sing better live and you're going to not blow out your voice, but you're also we need to have the same language and the same approach to singing. It's going to cut out the time. And in 1996, we were recording on two inch tape and there was no auto tune. There was no cut and paste. You had to nail every single tape and that takes time. And recording vocals is difficult anyway, uh, especially if you're not just shouting or, or rapping, you know, you're, if you're trying to carry a melody, you want to. So the soul singer was brought in for that. I have no idea who she was. Um, but part of it also is we're singing about uh, sexism and inclusion. And to have a female on the chorus, it makes sense. That's the sound of, uh, of inclusion. And you can't have man without woman. That's yin and yang. That's, that's everything. And that's a big part of why when we shot the isms video, we wanted there to be girls in it. Of course, it commercializes the product a little bit more, but we made sure that the girls are, are equals. Girls and guys were sandboarding or whatever the fuck we were doing. You know, that was- Skiing. Sand skiing. Yeah, Beavis and Butthead, we were skiing. We wanted to be inclusion. We were people that were open-minded in regards to race and taking people you know, for who they are as people. And, uh, and also Dave, Sean and I all have sisters. None of us have brothers. So we were brothers in arms, but we were raised, you know, by strong women and have sisters in our family and always wanted to project the image and the uh, stance that we were positive and wanted to make sure women felt included. And one way is to have them sing with you. It was happening at the live shows anyway, so why not <laughs> throw it down on uh, on stage? How do you think that the lyric "No Leftism" has aged in 2021? Yeah, I mean, probably not so much my intention. That was me struggling to find a word. Another ism <laughs> that, that had an ism. Yeah, without like probably fanning flames too much in any direction. You have to understand that one of our biggest hits to date prior to that was No Front. And, you know, one of the main lines is no soapbox politics. And I will say, I've said it before in interviews and I'll say it today. Like I wrote the 
the chorus to No Fronts. And part of it in mind was as a reaction to rage and being how political they were and seeing like, I somehow was thinking about the fact that maybe it was because the guys in the band were like, hey, you got to sing for all of us and not just what you feel. And I knew that bringing such a hardcore political stance was something that is, is tough to pull off. And it's a hard, it's a hard place to live forever. I respect the hell out of people that, that do that. And um, I don't know if uh, to, to, to turn the, the question around, I don't know if the politicism of, of rage necessarily has, has worn out, worn that well after 25 years as well. That wasn't something that necessarily could be lived up to. Okay, you know, you're, you're Rage Against the Machine and you're signed to Sony. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to walk that talk. And with the song Isms, I knew I was getting into territory here where we're talking about politics. And, you know, I dropped the leftism, even though personally, I'd say I lean more left than right on most issues. But even to this day, and, and back then, I always find myself to be more of an independent than anything. In today's polarized world of left and right and Democrat and Republican, I still remain independent and I'm fiercely that way. So on high, low, and also rise above a little bit, it's kind of a a vaguely spiritual uh, Mm -hmm. approach lyrically. Um, And I don't mean vaguely disrespectfully. I just mean like, you're not coming out and being like, you got to believe in this or that. But, and I thought that was interesting, especially, I feel like recently you personally have kind of been coming into some sort of a spiritual reawakening and I could be out of line Mm -hmm. or incorrect in saying that. You know, I remember discussion with the guys you know, about, about the maybe religious kind of aspect or, or topical, especially high-low. Um, you know, both songs, I think, for me, as being kind of the main lyricist in, in the band uh, then and especially now, that, you know, when, when you're constantly traveling and you're, you're, you're left alone to your thoughts, um, often... You know, I've always been somebody who's been kind of fascinated by the spiritual aspect of humanity. And I was raised a Catholic and, you know, Irish Catholic did the altar boy thing and everything. But I think pretty much the time that I started getting into music, probably um, it started. It was also probably the, the age, you know, you're 12 you're 13 or whatever, you, you start questioning everything. So religion amongst them. And I don't think I've, I've really stopped. There was, there was a period where I rejected religion. Um, and I, I still don't identify myself as any one thing, but rather what I guess I started to do right before Doggy Dog started to uh, really take off was I was going back to college and I was just going to community college, but I was taking philosophy and psychology and sociology. Those are the things that interest me the most at that time in my life. So I just started um, kind of getting into that. And really, I think on those two songs, 
really what I'm talking about is faith, you know, and the various ways that we connect to faith. And I think the way I probably explained it to the guys and I'm, I'm now thinking about it more is that, you know, when, when you're doing music and you, you're investing literally your whole life into a project and what we're doing at that time, it is an act of faith. And even though you've had success and you, you have these resources now that maybe you didn't in your life, you have a record company that believes in you and these shows that, that you're getting prepared to do if you can finish your project and, and all these deadlines now. Um, you know, the thing that you love doing all of a sudden has work uh, connotation attached to it as well, that you need, you need to, to come together and have faith. And I think that's really what, what the, the major themes, especially on those two songs are, and even about the, the greater theme of, of play games and the kind of team aspect of it is, you know, I guess I'm trying to convince myself and the guys and the listener to, to have some faith in, in us, in the process, uh, in ourselves, whatever it is. Cool. I definitely like that metaphor. And I mean, I like the subject of the songs too. I thought maybe with Rise Above specifically, it has, uh, you know, references to like detachment and things like that. You've been torn with shelter. I thought maybe you're, you know, getting a little bit conscious with that kind of stuff. The, I was thinking about that. I was at, as I was listening to the song yesterday and I remember that the, because I'm hearing the lyrics, I'm like, oh yeah, that's straight out of the teachings of Buddha. And the first time I went to Japan, I had gotten this book out of the hotel room. You know how in the U.S. you got a Bible in every, uh, yeah. <laughs> in every drawer? Well, in Japan, they had this teachings of Buddha. And I wanted to, first of all, I wanted a cool ass souvenir from Japan. So each page is in Japanese and then in English. So it's half and half. And it's a soft book, so I knew it would be good for, for traveling. And I also just felt connected to the messages coming from Buddhism because here I am um, doing what I, what I love to do and being uh, blessed and having the gratuity to, to do this. I'm in my, my mid twenties and I basically kind of, I'm having my dreams fulfilled, but also, you know, you start believing the hype, you know what I mean? Typical rock star shit. Um, there's, I, I even say it to this day after doing it for 30 years, it's not a real world to live in, you know, even at our small level. Now there is, it takes a, a pretty strong uh, mind and body to tour you know one of the ways that i kept myself grounded was by looking at books like the teachings of buddha or reading different things that said hey all of this comes all of this goes this will fade this will pass and matter of fact i was talking about gogo well the the percussion section where i have the uh, megaphone voice and it turns into the saxophone solo, that's a go-go socket. That's a go-go Go-go is known for a very simple um, main kick and snare drum beat, but then you have all this uh, bongo and, uh, and congas, smaller bongos, and cowbell plays a big role in go-go. So because Brandon's from Washington and he wanted to bring um, that flavor 
into uh, Dog Eat Dog, and it was his first writing sequence with Dog Eat Dog. We were trying to fit that go-go socket into some song, and it ended up in Rise Above. So then we have Rocky, which is the first single, which is Dave singing lead on here. And one attribute of this album in general is that there's just so much more singing, which you kind of explained earlier that you guys all went to vocal training. So it makes sense. You'd want to use these new skills. Yep. But this song in particular, you know, I mean, it, it it's a hit. You got the cool sax on that one. You got the, the catchy chorus. Uh, who is Rocky about? Rocky is about a condition that Dave got through touring. So we would fly all the time, like literally every day during festival season, especially on a weekend, you would go somewhere uh, Friday morning, you'd arrive, play a festival, Saturday morning, uh, fly to another city, play a festival, Sunday morning, same thing, wake up, play a festival. So you can imagine a band in their 20s uh, living life that we did. We were drinking every night and up late from partying and being around our friends. And Dave got this condition where his lip would literally swell and under his eye and over his eye, his eyelid, he physically would change um, because of the changes in elevation and being dehydrated. And it was basically an autoimmune reaction. The doctors really never could say exactly what it was, but it was him literally burning the candle too hard. And because it looked, his, his face would swell up. That was one of the first things. And his eye, he, he used to call it Rocky lip. He's like, oh, I got Rocky lip. And he's like, I got Rocky face. That's what he called the condition. Or even at the back of his head, like kind of where your spine meets your skull, it would swell massively and get like really bad headaches. And, you know, we all felt bad for him, but of course in a band, you've got to make fun and you've got to, everything becomes an inside joke or just a family thing. So he used to call it Rocky lip and Rocky face and Rocky head. And he wrote Rocky, you know, about live TV. Why do you always embarrass me? So everyone can see, let's duke it out on live TV. So basically he would, he would get Rocky lip. We'd have to go on some show in France and it'd be a live TV performance of no fronts or who's the king or whatever it was. We were making the, the promotional rounds and he'd be like, Oh shit, I have to get on stage today in front of this crowd. Or, you know, I have to do this TV appearance. And he wrote the song and the lyrics and the truth of the story. The absolute truth is at the time I was partners in a business. We were making snowboard clothes, clothing called mice. Um, and we were starting at that time, to make skate shoes. So we had a brand that we were launching called My Skate Shoes, NSS, and it was skateboarding sneakers. And of course, you know, like I said, it was- So these are, these are like fat sneakers, like Etnies or something, like just really- Three Etnies, honestly. The only shoes that were really out at that time for skateboardings were Vans, Airwalk, and uh, like Vision had some shoes. The year that we launched, um, DC had just come out with their Colin and Danny Way uh, shoes. So the year that we launched Nice Skate Shoes, I think 20 other brands launched at the same action sports retailer. 
but I was pretty busy with that. You know, it was a passion of mine. And like I said, I was living my dreams. I'm like an international rock star. And uh, now I'm getting to, to make sneakers. Like it was a huge deal. And it was pulling some of my time away from rehearsals or writing or whatever it was. Or I said, hey, guys, you know, I can't make it today. I'll see you tomorrow, whatever. And Dave came and they had ran through whatever they said. And Dave was like, look, I have this song that I wrote and I got words for it. Let's try it out. He wrote it. He sung it. They were like, this is your song. Like, it's about Rocky. And, you know, you're singing this. And Dave, you know, presented it and played it for me. And I was like, cool. Like, everybody sung anyway. Like, our song No Fronts, the actual record version of No Fronts, I sing on, you know, the first and the last verse. But there's three other rappers on that song. And it's one of our biggest songs. Like, you know, it's never been about ego for me. I'm part of the band. I get enough attention as the lead singer. If Dave takes the mic for one song, like I agreed. As soon as I heard and saw what the saw what the lyrics were about, it was like, yeah, cool. Like this, this is your jam. Like I don't care if it's our biggest hit. Like you should be singing this. Well, you're saying he was burning the candle at both ends. He was turning, like his face was swelling up. It sounds like you guys were hanging out with the Fantastic Four German group. You're talking about too much. He's Ben Grissoming out. <laughs> Johnny Storm is the cause of it. Uh, I think that I've solved the the case of the Rocky. Well, I'm glad you solved it because you're definitely going the wrong direction with me. <laughs> I'm like, I watch none of the Marvel movies or anything. Like, I remember the comic books as a kid, but that's about it. Batman, the TV show is as far as I go with, like, comic books. All right, so then we're to step right in. So I guess my biggest, I have two main questions about this song that you may have not covered. One... Why isn't this a single? Before, why is it the last single? You got Rizza on the song. Why isn't this bumped up in the the list of songs to be released? Why is Isms before separated? Wu Tang was not a household name. Like we were East Coast guys, uh, rap into rap. We had uh, Solid Ground, which was guys from Teaneck. You know, our local 076, our local zip code. Um, our friends, like like you said, it, it was a party for us. And yeah, Jam Master Jay wasn't our friend. I'm not going to front uh, <laughs> and say he was. That was a calculated move by the record company to bring in. And Wu-Tang Forever is getting to be released. Wu-Tang was an entirely different beast then. They had never played in Europe when Isms came out. So it was it was the right play for sure. And I was 100%, you know, everybody in the band was 100% behind Rocky as well. That song for us um, live was huge. People love that song. That's that's a staple of our set every year we've played since, since the uh, album came out, even for a period in the, from like probably 2001 to 2003 or we, we didn't have a sax player regularly at our live gigs and we always played Rocky anyway. What did Rizza think about the saxophone? He loved it. Oh. Rizza, Rizza loved everything. There's, there's keyboard in that there's piano that I think Rizza himself played um, on the track. I mean, Rizza was present. I, I joked earlier that Rizza was supposed to come to New Milford, New Jersey to our rehearsal place. And he was, he's supposed to come, you know, I think there was at least, three to a half dozen scheduled, like, okay, Rizzo will be there between six and midnight. And every time we just showed up, it was paid for by the record company, you know, 
we sat around and probably jammed or, you know, maybe just talked, whatever happened, the RZA never showed. And finally, we booked, I think it was Chung King House of Metal in, in Manhattan, and we booked the studio time that day. Um, the song was written on the spot. RZA was out in Las Vegas for, I think it was a Tyson fight the night before he he got arrested or got into a fight. Something happened where he showed up in the studio. He had a massive shiner. Like he, his lip was fat. And I, I'll never forget, he was wearing the Killer Bee Stingers. So he had all the rings on it. I mean, you know, he just rolled in and it was just like, yo, he was just su- such a force. Like, you know what I mean? Like we were these energetic you know, 20 somethings, you know, we were feeling ourselves. It was a totally different vibe than JMJ. When Jam Master J came in, he was chill. He was having a good time. He definitely had his ideas and he was involved in, in a lot of parts of making the song, but not like RZA. RZA, like, I don't think he, he might even got behind the drum kit and showed Brandon the feel that he was looking for. He was involved with everything. It was like, basically he was like an orchestral conductor, absolutely present and uh, integral to writing the song. I'll never forget it. And even, even going to Shaolin, you know, just, just going to Staten Island and going to like 36 chambers and like Ghostface at the time and still is one of my favorite rappers out of, out of the woo really to me was one of the biggest characters just so to show up while he was making you know the Iron Man record which is you know one of my jams and everything like it was just a dream come true you know just to be able to sit there and you know have him come out and just be like welcome yeah it was just a, a beautiful all-around experience yeah I've, I've never enjoyed going to Staten Island so that sounds like a <laughs> completely different <laughs> thing than I have in fairness, in fairness, shout out Staten Island because Doggy Dog has had a few memorable gigs out there. And I used to go out there with Mucky Pup uh, when those guys would play um, with Enrage. Shout out to Jeff. Uh, the guy's still going at it. Um, but yeah, like we've, we've always had a good time in, in, uh, in Shaolin and uh, 36 Chambers was no different. It was definitely an experience for me and whether or not Wu-Tang became the name that they were, it meant a lot to me at that time. 36 Chambers album was a big, big deal to me and, and my greater kind of social group uh, than just Dog Dog. So I assume that that was a completely different experience with RZA than with Dio on games. Now, I understand. I've heard you tell the story a hundred times as far as how Dio got brought into it. And not that I won't hear it a hundred and first, but I <laughs> wanted to ask you, is there a version of this song that existed with you singing the part that Dio ended up doing? Yeah, that got sent to Ronnie. Ronnie got sent with me doing the demo. I think we might have done like a demo for, for the Butcher Brothers or uh, maybe it was just a rehearsal room. But we did we did a demo to send to Ronnie. We, we didn't want, you know, part of, I guess, you know, you've heard the story that I came up with the idea that, that when I wrote the, the melody or the line, Oh yeah. Like I literally heard Dio's voice singing it. That's the way I sang it um, for the demo, but it was almost like 
one of these band inside joke things. Like, yeah, imagine if Dio was singing this, like, ha ha. Like, and then Howie or, or Chris, our manager, somebody was like, you want to see if we can get him? I think it was Howie. Like, he might have heard the demo or he's like, you want me to see if I can get him? I was like, shit me. Like, Dio, like, okay, why not? Let's see who we can get. You know, our, our approach never was like, oh, let's get the craziest collabo or let's be that collabo band or whatever. But the, the kind of rules or genesis of Doggy Dog was like, hey, we're here to have a good time, get people together, uh, make a party and play music. And part of it is getting people together. And as musical artists, we always thought it was cool to get people together. And of course, by the time Play Games rolls around, he came to us with the nicest vibe in the world. Ronnie was a complete mensch, you know, he showed up humble and almost self-depreciating in a way like, oh, I don't know if I can sing that. Cause when we asked him to sing the national anthem, he was like, oh God, like I'm a really big sports fan and I know what you're going for, but I don't know if I can get that, you know, get that tone right now and everything. We're like, of course you can. You're Ronnie Dio. Like, <laughs> you're Mr. Heaven and Hell. You're Mr. Mob Rules. Like, you got this. Um, but he was so cool. And our experience was overwhelmingly cool that it, it made it very special to us to, to have him involved with the project. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I love that he's on it, but it's not like, you know, the RZA song is like a collaboration, whereas this is kind of Dio's just on the song. It doesn't sounds silly to not have him on it whereas you know if you remove rizza from step right in it's not even a song anymore not the song yeah yeah, yeah it was all rizza coming in and you're right it was such a difference of uh kind of collaboration in that way like i wrote ronnie's part for him he came in um the national anthem thing i think might have been thought about between the invitation and not but there were certainly no surprises for ronnie um everything was communicated with Wendy, his wife, and it ended up being really special as our Wayne's world. I'm not worthy moments. <laughs> and there's certainly Howie Abrams, myself, Dave, Sean, everybody, Scott Mueller, Mark, everybody in the band, even Robert Musso, who, you know, was a well-accomplished guy, uh, studio engineer at that time. He had reverence for Ronnie and uh, it couldn't have gone better. He gave us Black Sabbath stories and everything. But I will tell you a story that you might not have heard. We got invited to play the Monsters of Rock at Donington Castle. Sharon Osbourne was the organizer. It was Kiss's first show in makeup since they had put the makeup back on. Ozzy was the main support as Sharon owns the Monsters of Rock festival title. But she personally invited us. We got on the main stage. So Doggy Dog is uh, got this massive. I think we were playing Reading as well. And I think we had to give up some big festival that they, they never forgave us. And we never looked <laughs> on since. I think Rock, Rock M Ring, the big German festival or something like that happened. I can't remember exactly, but I will remember this exactly. So like I said, the purse strings were, were pretty loose at Rose, Roadrunner at that time. And we wanted to fly Dio in and open up with games and have Ronnie come out and sing 
for, for the land of the free and come out and sing the national anthem at Donington. <laughs> the U.S. Sure, national anthem in Donington. Just the intro. We weren't going to make them sing the whole thing because we already knew that was a pretty famous rock festival. And there were 70,000 people there that day. It was sold out. We're playing, I think that was our biggest UK audience at that point. You know, so we, we had played big stages before, but that was a really big deal. And people bring giant, uh, like two gallon warm uh, bottles of like cider, drink it all and then piss into it and throw it without the top on. Like that's what this festival <laughs> is famous for, okay? So giant <laughs> vats of cider flying around. So, so there was rocks. There was smaller bottles of, you know, piss being thrown about that day. So to, to get up there and sing the short version of the, the national anthem probably would have been a, a, a big deal. And Ronnie would have been happy singing the small, the small one. But yeah, our, our intention that day was to have Ronnie come out and do that and open with the song games. And we often open with it on, on that, that tour. At that time, we had like, you know, our sound man had a little CD. And, you know, he would start it from the booth when we gave him the signal and, you know, he cut it out as Brandon counted, counted the song in. But we were, wanted Ronnie to do it. And apparently Sharon Osbourne was having none of that. No fucking deal on my fucking festival. And uh, yeah, that, that didn't happen that day. So keeping with the, the family vibe, we got getting live with a roguish armament. Also a Bad Brains connection, I think, right? Yes. Yes, the two guys in Roguish were already friends of mine. Um, I met them through the Bad Brains guys, of course, and uh, also just the New York scene, you know, skating, uh, hip hop shows, hardcore shows. Those guys were from Queens, so they were friends with Leeway and Murphy's Law, and our relationship with those bands already had gone back to Mucky Pup. So, you know, we're talking about mid 80s to mid 90s now. They were getting ready to launch their own record. Um, David, Dave Malpy, who played drums on Allboro Kings, has a side project with those guys and one of the rappers from Allboro Kings called The Shining Path. Not a lot of people know that, but that's a really dope album. Um, and yeah, just another... Daryl Jennifer as well. Daryl Jennifer's in, in, involved with Shining Path as well. Exactly. Um so, you know, you've got your incestuous little crew and it makes sense, you know, when I start connecting those dots, why they were on the record. And to us, you know, it also, I think, highlights the idea that we were interested in collaborations, not with just names. You know, we weren't buying Snoop Dogg or Gwen Stefani. Uh, you know, we were we were wanted to collaborate with people that that felt authentic to us. And those guys were in my opinion and the band opinions, good rappers. And, you know, they had had something creative to offer and the idea for the song. I think I had the hook for a long time and I really didn't know where to, where to go lyrically with it. And yeah, that's one of my best moves. If I can't come up with lyrics to myself for a song, I farm it out to a friend. <laughs> so. Uh, well, the song is about <laughs> truckers. <laughs> I mean, it's about trucking. It's about CB communication, basically. Yes. Fucking with truckers on CBs. Look, you're talking to a band. You're talking about a band that's had spent a lot of time from 94 in vans, tour buses, 
hotel and airplane shuttles. Like our entire life was spent, you know, moving um, and mostly in, in wheeled vehicles. So uh, for some reason, it made sense to write a song about truckers. <laughs> I mean, it's a cool song. I don't want you to think, but it is also ridiculous that the song was about truckers. Can we come to agreement on that? Absolutely. Okay. And I love the way, you know, I think, I think that really truthfully tells the story that, that Danny and Chippy were creative enough MCs to write um, vocally interesting enough and lyrically interesting enough verses to put over a song about truckers. It was a, a tag team match where I had the hook and I had you know this idea. I think I was trying to think about where the keyboards came in. I remember when we were in the Butcher Brothers session, they brought in a guy to play keyboards and that guy happened to be Scott Storch. Who was oh, wow. Who was playing keyboards with the Roots at the time. So tie in with the Roots crew and Philly and Concha Hawkins song, uh, Sound, which was the studio. The Butcher Brothers studio was above their record label. So they had their record label offices below the studio. So there was a lot of uh, Rough House was the name of the label business going on. And we needed a keyboard player to come in. And probably because of the Roots involvement with Rough House or uh, whatever it was, maybe he was making beats in another studio. But Scott Storch came in because they were like, hey, yeah, this guy, he's a great keyboard player. You know, he can play keys on anything. We're like, all right, well, we need, you know, we need a good guy to come in and, <laughs> and, and, and play. This is, a, this is a big record. And they're like, yeah, don't worry about it. He, he plays with The Roots. And I heard about The Roots already. I think their first album had already been out. So I was hip to it. Live hip hop band from Philly. He comes in. And it's a white dude. Like this guy plays in the roots. I was like, "Are you pulling my leg?" They're like, "No." He's like, "You know, it's his own white dude in the the roots or whatever." So I'm like, "Okay," and uh, sure enough, it it was Scott Storch that uh, that was that guy. And, oh wow! And a decade uh, later, you would have had to drop a million dollars for Scott Storch to play keyboard. Rock away. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I just love these little connections, you know, and moments in time when. And it just goes to show, too, over the years in the music business that you never really know who you're standing with. You never know who uh, who who could be, you know, that talent or that person to help, you know, bring a project or an idea to the next level. So there's two moments on the album. They're both near the end that are very confusing to me. Uh, <laughs> the next one is number one, the song Buggin'. <laughs> Walk me through what, what happened here. Well, Buggin' was a compromise, for sure. That was a song that Dave really had to put over. And it was an idea that he had, and he championed. And everybody in the band, especially in a band that large, we had, you know, two guitars and our sax player. Everybody, everybody had a voice here now, and it was uh, an equal voice at that time. And, you know, I had done a lot of work putting over the title, uh, you know, play games and, and, and the concept behind the packaging. And, you know, people had, had to have a certain amount of faith. And Dave was the guy who championed Buggin. He was just like, look, we've done all these really weird and different things. He's a guy that still today is hugely invested in soundtrack music 
he conceptualized it. He helped see it through. He brought everybody along kicking and screaming, but listening and back to that song yesterday. And it's been the first time in a long time since I've heard that song, but listening to it and hearing the lyrical content and hearing Sean's and Bark's voices and Scott's voice, it just made me laugh and it made me <laughs> smile. You know, you asked me if the leftism line holds up 25 years later. And I said, you know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I don't care. I don't care if bugging holds up. <laughs> and honestly, at the time, we were getting a lot of ink. Record reviews. We knew this album was going heavy to press. Like we made an electronic press kit, the EPK. That was new. No Roadrunner bands had done that before. That was like, you know, big label shit to do. So you know, we, we were out there, we were trying different stuff and bugging was one of those things that, that we tried, but it makes me, it made me smile yesterday and I had no resentment. I had no cringe factor to tell you the truth. I knew better, but I honestly thought it was the end of the record for a second <laughs> until, until numb came up. And then I was like, Oh, of course. I was like, you know, well, uh, like bugging, it is what it is, but it made me smile that's kind of a cool way to end the record. And then it's like, of course, numb kicks in. I'm like, this is not the record. Like the marching band is the end of the record. So there was a, a, a conscious agreement not to make all Kings part two. And that certainly would have been what the label wanted. Maybe what our fan base wanted. I mean, I think over the course of time, play games uh, may, may not have sold as much, but, and we might not have hit the same highs, but I think it really connected with a lot of people there the isms did very well as a single and rocky is a song that still resonates isms and rocky resonate step right in part of our set almost every night even even games is a song that you know people wanted to hear and maybe that was a song that i would have pushed aside um over a song like isms um if i had to build a set list but it's nice to dust them off and play for a while but bug in is not a song that uh, that you're that's ever going to be dusted off and, and and played. The last song, "Sore Loser," is almost like an outro, like it's this very like punk oi thing. And then "Be Kind to Your Web-Footed Friends" comes on for like three minutes, and maybe that's some sort of baseball thing that I don't know. But is this <laughs> what's going on with the song that is the outro with the marching band? You know that song had. You know, thinking about it now, and I listened to it yesterday, didn't really bring up these feelings or thoughts, but that song, it seems like we were trying to put a lot into that song in a, in a small amount of, uh, in a small package. Just the tone of the lyrics. Now, let's, let's put it this way. That, that song was one that I didn't write lyrically. That was primarily a Sean Kilkenny uh, penning. And I think maybe now just reflect, excuse me, reflecting on it, it was that at that point, like I said, I wasn't interested in going backwards. I didn't want to make an Allboro Kings 2. I think if you talk about every song before it on the record, you wouldn't really, um, couldn't pin it as a hardcore, even a kind of pop punk. It, it, it just didn't have that, that tempo or whatever. So I think maybe that song was included and part of the record to also 
let people know that, hey, we still have this hardcore or thrash element. It's, we still have this kind of feeling. We still like this. We still kind of sound like this. Um, and maybe that's probably why Sean wrote the lyrics. Like I just wasn't connecting to it or whatever. Of course I sang it, and, you know, we, we got everybody involved, but just the way it's written, it feels even more, not even like an Allboro King song where I feel like we had more, more of a groove element and a little bit more of an urban element. I think it feels more like our first demos, even like our earliest material where it was like stops and starts and a little bit spastic and just kind of immature too, in a way more along and not to slight mucky pup this uh, with this, but more along the lines of like a mucky pup style song. The end of the song or the outro was definitely a Scott Mueller thing or a sax player um, because of the nature of the, lyrical content of the song and where we decided to put it on the record. We were just trying to get creative on the record and give people just an, another little element of something to listen to. Um, it could have been done for even length reasons. I don't know. To be honest with you, I think play games, and I can't even recall exactly right now. I think there might've been one song from play games that we started on that got left off or whatever, but there wasn't a ton of excess material for play games. It's not, you know, there wasn't 30 songs written for 12, <laughs> you know, it was maybe 13 or what, you know, <laughs> whatever. Like we didn't leave a lot on the cutting room floor. I think we put a lot of thought and, and time and rehearsal into the songs that were written. So not to say that we didn't think about it because we certainly did, but the um that that marching band thing at the end per is on um, purposely like out of key um because the way the song and sore loser and the topic like hey you know we were metalheads and skateboarders in high school and now look at us you know the the jocks who put us down and you know thought they were uh so much smarter, so much cooler, had it all together, whatever it was. I mean, to me, that's what I take away from that song. I think that's exactly what Sean was writing about. To me, that is our MTV moment put in a song because one of the things about us winning the MTV award in Europe that, that really made it special for us, people have asked us over the years, isn't it, wasn't it difficult having, you know, not su having success in America? And I said, well, we really had the best of all worlds because we were famous in Europe and other countries around the world, but not stars in our home. And, you know, we didn't have the trappings of celebrity, but we could go to other places and live it. And when we won the MTV award in Europe, it just happened to be on Thanksgiving day. So it was broadcast on a Thursday night on a Thanksgiving day in America uh, on the day when, you know, we're 24 years old or something, 25 at the time, you know, the day that everybody from your hometown is at home at their parents and having Thanksgiving dinner, and they're probably bored out of their mind, or if they're not watching football, MTV's on, and here's these idiots from your hometown 
accepting MTV award for, you know, best new artist for Michael Hutchins from NXS. And we're like, yeah, we fucking did it. Guess what? You know, the underdog is the top dog today. And not only could our friends and family see it uh, live or at least kind of in real time, but like, you know, all those people that call us dickheads for being skateboarders or metalheads or whatever uh, saw it too, or at least somebody else, you know, saw it. And, you know, that Friday night when they're out at the bar at Black Friday and, you know, people are like, holy shit, did you see, you know, Kilkenny and Connor or Dave Niebuhr or whatever, you know, those, those mutton heads made, made it good. Mutton you know? heads. <laughs> That's one of my favorite words that nobody uses. I do love that it's on theme with the album and everything. And, you know, it's a nice way to wrap things up. So I do like that. And I don't dislike the song either. It's just, it ends abruptly. And then there's three minutes of <laughs> the yeah. song from when I was in K4. So I was very confused. We used to love playing that song live, but when we play it, we generally play it in an exercise of, okay, who can, who can keep up with this? Let's see how fast we can play this song without having a band member tap out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so it's that moment in the set where we race each other through a song. What would you have done differently with play games? I know you're not a guy that lives with regrets or anything like that. So I'm not asking you to regret anything, but you know, going back, you said you just listened to it. Is there anything you hear where you're like, Oh, you know what? This would have been a cool idea or not, not really. Music plays such a massive part in people's life and interaction. And that's why this day and age to have records turning 25 years old, I can really do it from a place of gratitude and humility and not have any of the uh, entitlement or accomplishment that I might have felt making these records <laughs> 25 years ago. This is Iron Eagle. We'll talk to you next time. Come on and play. Come on and play. Come on and play these games today. Happy 25th birthday to Doggy Dogs Play Games. Which means I must be at least 26? No, that doesn't seem right. New Doggy Dog album coming, so keep your ears to the streets and the ice hockey rinks. But you know what else is coming? A new episode of Meet Meep next week. Season 3, 25th anniversaries continues. And don't wear white because we're going to find our roots. Bloody roots. In the meantime, follow the show on Instagram at Meet Meep Pod. Leave a five-star rating on Apple Music. And join me every Wednesday for a new episode. I'm Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meep. And yes, that's the best I could come up with. Bye. <laughs>